I was so tempted to pick up one of those chocolates as they went round, and then knowing my luck, it would be one of those really chewy, toffee ones, and I'd be trying to speak, and I, it, it just wouldn't work. I wonder what what people who who aren't Christians, what people who aren't in a church, think about Easter, what they think today is all about. I know when I was a kid, I didn't understand it in the slightest. I had no idea what Easter was about. To me, it was basically, well, the church's second best festival. To me, it, it seemed to be, well, it seemed to be about one thing that was quite disappointing, actually. It seemed to be about chocolate rationing. Now, I am not old enough to remember real rationing. I know this is the highlight in the hair, but I'm not that old. I mean the sort of chocolate rationing that my mum imposed on me throughout the whole of the Easter period. Because I'm sure it wasn't the same for you. Me and my sister, we'd go and visit on Easter morning, lots of friends and relatives, and come back with maybe 10, 11, 12 Easter eggs. I know. Well, we had a lot of friends. Well, my mum had a lot of friends. I didn't have many friends. Thank you. That was nice. And we'd get them all in a nice big line, but we wouldn't be allowed to touch them on Easter morning. I mean, it's not Christmas. So we'd have to line them all up on the radiator. And then, well, that, that's where the windowsill was in our house. So, you know, it's it starting badly from that point. And then we've got this massive selection of chocolates to choose from. And then my mum would say, you can either have half an egg or the sweets inside. And that would be it. That would be it. So each egg theoretically would last us three days. So we've got a month's worth of chocolate just staring us in the face. This has scarred my sister for life. She... <laughs> She's still... You talk, when I go and see you later on the day, drop some presents off for the kids, she's going to mention it. She's going to talk about it. I'm over it. And I'd like to pretend... I'd like to pretend that that's because I've grown in patience and everything. It's not. It's because when I was a kid, I was much more sneaky than she was. And what I realised was... I'm just hoping all the kids have gone out to kids' work at this point. That... If you were careful with the packaging and kind of came in from the back, you could actually... There's somebody very guilty there. You could actually get the sweets and chocolates out without being noticed. Well, without being noticed for about a week. And then I'd be in trouble. Maybe those scars haven't healed as much as I thought they had. <laughs> The passages that I'm going to read this morning aren't the outline of Easter Sunday. We're on a journey here through the Gospel of Mark, and the passages that I'm going to read are, are just where we're up to. It follows on from what we heard last week, where Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, and the disciples as we heard last week, said that 
Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then it's Peter that says, but I know you're the Messiah, the one sent to save people, the king that's come to put people right with God again, the rescuer, the savior. And then Jesus tells them that he's going to die, but he's going to come back again. And then Peter gets it really wrong when he gets told off by Jesus. Jesus tells him that he isn't thinking about what God wants. He's only thinking about what he wants. So I'm going to be reading from the next chapter. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through to 29. I'm going to read it in the ESV version. Um, If you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along. It is going to appear behind me, hopefully. It's an awful lot of text. I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just telling you. It's, it's an awful lot of text. So the font might be quite small. I'm going to read anyway. So this is what it says. It's um, two sections. It's headed up in my Bible as the transfiguration and then the healing of a boy with an unclean spirit. So this is what it says. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, which is what we're celebrating this morning. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it's written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. 
It's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And immediately Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them around him said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Two very different and quite long passages, which seemingly don't have a lot to do with the Easter story. But it's Easter, so we're going to look at the gospel through these passages. Because... I'll be honest, they're worthy of a couple of talks each, at least. But we're here this morning to celebrate the glorified, risen Jesus. And that's who we're going to talk about in these passages. You see, Jesus, he takes up a couple of friends up the mountain with him. And that's who they get to see. They get to see a glorified Jesus. In this scene, on the mountain of transfiguration, we get we get a little glimpse, only for a moment, an unveiling of who Jesus is. Just for a moment, the the lid's lifted off, and we catch sight of a glorified Son of God in his human body coming into the presence of God the Father. It's It's as if the doorway to heaven's opened, and Jesus is covered in the light of God's heavenly presence. I think the attitude of the disciples is probably the one that we can identify with the most. When that happens, absolute terror. They are scared silly about what's going to happen. Here is Jesus in all his glory. And their first reaction is, let me go and build a tent, get me out of here as quickly. They are scared because... Jesus in all his glory is so magnificent. And then two more characters appear. Moses and Elijah. These are probably the two most significant characters in the whole of the Old Testament. And they help us and the disciples see even more about who this Jesus is who's being unveiled on the mountain is. You see, to them, uh, Moses was a hero. He'd led the people out of Egypt. He'd led them out of slavery. God had given him ten commandments. He he symbolized the law. The whole system of sacrifices that are built around it, the things that you can do to please God, the things that you do that don't please God. 
how you can try and make it right with him again when you get it wrong. Moses symbolized everything to do with the whole law structure. And then there's Elijah, symbolizing the prophets, the people who speak and call the people back to the law, call people back to the favor of God. He was a messenger sent from heaven. The people rarely stuck to the laws and they needed reminding frequently about what God had said to them. Elijah represents God speaking, calling out to a people, saying, come back to me. So in these two characters, we've got the law and the prophets together, the two main parts of the Old Testament. And here they are stood talking to Jesus. Jesus, who has kept all of the law. Jesus, who's never sinned. Jesus, who's fulfilled every part of the law. Jesus, who's fulfilled the prophecies that were spoken about him. We heard some of them read from Isaiah this morning. Jesus, the one who could bring people back to God. Moses and Elijah, they're there to point to the fact that Jesus is now the important thing. Moses and Elijah are standing there pointing to a Messiah that is very soon going to rescue all of his people from the slavery of sin in a way that the law and the prophets never could. They're standing there with a new era on the horizon. The old system represented by Moses and Elijah, it's going to pass away. A new one is coming through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is going to the cross to start a new era in God's relationship with his people. The bit that we read this morning, the transfiguration, this bit here, it's the start of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to a glorious resurrection. So, I have three points this morning. I know. So my first one is this. That Jesus' journey to the cross, starting here on the mountain of transfiguration, was not an accident. It was part of a plan. Because there's different types of journey. You wonder what was going through the disciples' mind, what sort of journey they were on as they mounted, as they walked up the mountain. They probably didn't fully understand what was going on. There's the sort of journey that I take with my dog most days. I don't do the big walk with the dog. Anne-Marie, my wife, does that. I do the late-night walk. And actually, it's dead simple. My, my dog really does have a mind of its own. It's not a very strong mind, but it really does have a mind of its own. And the way our late-night walk works is dead simple. I put her on the lead, I open the back door, and then we wander out. And really, whatever direction she goes in, that's the direction I go in. The only real plan is that at some point, one of us is going to get bored or tired, and then we'll probably, wherever we've ended up, come back home again. 
There's no real plan involved in that. It just kind of happens. But then there's the other sort of journey. When we're going away on holiday, it's a very different set of affairs. Normally, if we're going on holiday, we're going camping somewhere. There's a definite destination that we're going to. Probably booked a long time in advance. And there's a plan. Anne-Marie, she'll get out everything that we need. She'll check it. She'll check it again. She'll make a list. She'll tick everything off her list. She'll pack the car. Then she'll unpack the car and repack the car. Practice getting it all in exactly the right place. She'll order any maps that we need. Any books that we need that tell us about where we're going. She'll print a route planner off. She's very deliberate in every action that is done in planning that sort of journey. Obviously, I play my part as well. I let her do those things. And then I go and buy a CD for the journey. So, there's a plan. And then, after all of that planning, there's a moment when our journey starts, when we head off to our final destination. One type of journey, it's pretty much the whim of the dog. It's chance or accident where we end up. The other, we know where and when the journey's going to end, and we've planned it all. That's the sort of journey that we see starting at the Transfiguration. Jesus is recognized by Peter as the Messiah. He goes up the mountain. God shines down on him. God speaks. And then Jesus starts the journey down to Jericho, down to Jerusalem, and then to the cross. It wasn't that out of all the places Jesus could have gone to, he just picked Jerusalem out of a hat and ended up there. It wasn't that when he got to Jerusalem, by that point Judas has had enough. So things happened. It wasn't that the Jewish authorities had just about got enough evidence to get their man by then. It wasn't that the Romans had figured out how they could punish him. It was an active choice by Jesus to go to the cross. It was part of a plan to save mankind. A plan to save you and me. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all of the law, the one who God is pleased with, from this point on, sets out towards his death on a cross, and then resurrection three days later. To emphasize the point that it's Jesus who's coming to rescue his people, to help them back, in this passage we actually hear directly from God. From the cloud we, we get these words. We get, this is my son who I've chosen. Listen to him. He answers the question, that Jesus was asking the disciples, who do you say I am? God says, this is my son. He's not just a carpenter or a teacher or a rabbi or 
someone who heals the sick, which he can do and is going to in the next passage. This is my son who I love, who I've chosen. He's the one that I'm going to use to make a way for sinful people to have a relationship with God, to go where the law and the prophets couldn't. And then God says, listen to him. God has done his part to bring about the salvation of the world. And that active choice starts on the mountain. Okay, I want to move on to the story of the the healing of the boy in the next little bit of scripture I read. In this part of the story, the, the boy has been through He's been through a dreadful time. Thrown about in the fire, mute, deaf, tough time. And he hasn't been able to get himself free from this. His family, as much as they've wanted to, haven't been able to get him free. His friends, the rest of the town, the people around him, actually even the disciples, they haven't been able to to save this boy. He needs Jesus. And that's my second point. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus. The Jesus who's going to the cross. You see, in the previous bit, we saw that Jesus was coming to fulfill all of the law. We've got a problem with laws. Because no matter how good we like to think we are, we've all broken a law at some point. You may not have murdered someone. Do you know that? I said that on an Alpha course once. That's a different story. <laughs> but <laughs> but we've all done stuff that's wrong. We've all broken some of God's laws. Actually, it might be that you sat here and you're thinking, do you know what, I'm not really that bothered about God's laws. Well, do you know what, even if you live or try to live by your own laws and standards, you still won't have lived up to them. We all sin. We all break God's laws. We all choose to do the wrong thing. You may be thinking, do you know what, I've tried my best, but I'm betting there's stuff that we're just not proud of. Stuff that we've done, stuff that we've thought, stuff that we haven't done. We fall short. In fact, it says that in the Bible, it says it in Romans. It says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the target of what we've been aiming at. And because God is God, there's a punishment that goes with that. It's very simple. It says that in Romans as well, Romans 6.23. When someone breaks a law, there's a cost to pay. The wages of sin is death. For God, the punishment for us doing things wrong is very, very simple. 
It's death. It's being separated from him forever. It says in Isaiah, the prophet that we heard from earlier, your iniquities, the stuff you've done wrong, has separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. We, we all, have mucked up our relationship with God. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves to earn that relationship back. Like the boy in the passage, there's nothing that we can do, our family can do, and our friends can do to fix it for us. But God has an answer. And it's why Jesus chose the journey to the cross. Because the answer is the cross. The good news of Easter is that God doesn't leave us with our relationship ruined. God, through the death of Jesus, gives us a way back to him. There's another verse in Romans, and it says this. It says, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. We stuff the relationship up. We have no way of building it back again. We can't save ourselves. But Jesus, by taking all of our sin on himself, Jesus who did no sin, by taking it all on himself and dying on the cross paid that price, that penalty of death, for us. On the cross, God did a fantastic exchange. Jesus takes on himself all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the stuff that separates us from him, all of the things that we've got wrong. Jesus takes that on himself and at the cross is prepared to give us all of his cleanness, all of his righteousness, all of his relationship with his Father. Through the cross, we are set free and we are clean. It says in Corinthians... God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus chose to go to the cross, he chose to be the sacrifice that saved us and gave us a new relationship with God. And then finally, I just want to look at what the father, what the dad in the story says. Because he says to Jesus, if you can help him, if. This, this man has, he's got some sort of belief. He's, he's come to Jesus. He's, he's hoping Jesus can do something. But he's not fully there. He's heard about Jesus. 
He might have seen some of his miracles somewhere along the line. But he hasn't put all of his trust, all of his confidence, all of his faith in Jesus. He hasn't put his trust in what Jesus can do. He says, if you can, and then Jesus, Jesus basically tells him off. He says, look, it's not an if. And then the man, well, he realizes. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus was not after a vague, you can probably do me some good. Nobody else has managed. He's not after a a woolly answer from the man in the story. And from us, Jesus isn't after a, you died on the cross for us. That was nice. Or, you can do miracles, can you? Oh, you can do one for me. My final point is that there is a response. The response to Jesus paying the price for our sin is to have our own relationship with him. The man says, I believe. He says, Jesus, you were right. I was wrong. He repents from what he's done. I'll come back to that in a second. And he starts trusting Jesus. He says, help my unbelief. Give me faith. This man has a complete turnaround. Instead of, you might be all right, you might be able to help, he repents. We should do that on the Alpha course as well. From the Greek word, Greek word, metanoia. We get the word metamorphosis, a change to face in a different direction. The father changes his thinking completely about Jesus. He comes to see, it's not just he's a good guy, he is the answer. That's what God wants from us. Us to admit that we've been wrong in the things we've done when we've not put Jesus first. To say, you're God and you're right. That his way of doing things, that him choosing to go to the cross to pay for our sins so that we don't have to, is the right way to do things. That his way of building a relationship with us again is the right way. It means changing our heart. As somebody, and I apologize, I don't know who, prayed earlier on, this is sometimes seen as a Christian country. 80% of people, when asked, claim that they have a belief in God. But for so many people, it has no real effect on their lives. There's an idea that Jesus can probably do some good, but there's no action to choose him and put him first. When we come to Jesus, we can really start to change. We can really start to grow to be the person that God wants. 
trying to work our way through laws, trying to do it right on our own, we always fall short. But by coming to Jesus, having our own personal relationship with him, by saying, look, I've got it wrong. I know I have. I've stuffed it up. But I give it all to you because you have paid for it all. We can have a relationship with him. We can move out of having no future to having an eternal future. You see, when we become a Christian, when we come to Jesus, when we accept that he died instead of us, we gain so much. We receive a new life. It says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The stuff that we struggle with through our whole lives, the things that we do wrong again and again and again, God says, look, I give you a new life. I take them away from you. You don't have to pay for them anymore. I choose to. And gives us a new life. A life where we can build a relationship with him. A life where he can be our father. And he gives us an eternal life. We get to be with him forever. The father's response in the story was, I'm sorry, you want more from me. I believe From these passages, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless one, the one who kept all of the law, we see that he chooses to go to the cross, an active decision because we needed rescuing. We see that we couldn't save ourselves. It needed him. His rescue plan, his choice to take all of our sin on himself enables us to get close to him again. And we see that actually it's an active personal decision that we need to make to follow him. I'm going to ask Bobby and the band to come back up if they don't mind. We're going to worship again in a moment or two. It might be, it might be that you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Well, I think that probably puts you pretty much in the same sort of category as the father who was in the story that we listened to. That you're not anti-God. If you were, you probably wouldn't be here. He's probably a good person. 
if you're not a Christian here this morning, my message to you is, sadly, that's not enough. Jesus' choice of going to the cross demands a personal response. It doesn't need a, that was nice. It doesn't need a, well, hey, I was born in this Christian country, so it's all right. It doesn't need a, well, my parents believe it, it'll be okay. It doesn't need a, well, as a kid I went to church. It needs a personal response. If you're not a Christian here to, this morning, my appeal to you is this. Take this opportunity. Take this opportunity to meet the risen Jesus, the one who can rescue you from the mess that we make of our own lives. We're going to worship in a moment and then we'll give people the opportunity to do that. But there's another person in the story that we haven't really mentioned much. And actually, that's the boy. The poor lad. The one who's thrown about into fire, into flames, and deaf and mute. He's got a tough time of it, to be honest. And the end of his story is Jesus heals him. Jesus heals him. I mean, it it puts it quite simply. Jesus, Jesus healed him. That Jesus, that risen Lord Jesus, has the same power to do that today as he did 2,000 years ago. In fact, in the story there, it needed Jesus, physical person of Jesus to lay hands on, pray for healing. We have the privilege as Christians now of being able to ask Jesus to heal anyone of anything. We don't need him to suddenly appear in the room. We can ask Jesus as healer and saviour to heal people. And it would be wrong to avoid that opportunity as well. Jesus is here this morning so that people who don't know him can meet him and so that people who are sick, who are unwell, who need healing, can meet him. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship, and then we're going to see what happens. Father God, thank you that Jesus dying on the cross was your choice. Thank you that it wasn't a random collection of events but it was your rescue plan for mankind. Thank you that we can have a relationship with you. Thank you that you can give us a secure, eternal destiny and set us free from all the rubbish that we put in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you want to have a relationship with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you want us to be part of your family, (laughs) to have an individual relationship with the risen King. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose that to save your people. Amen.